This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. We all know what happened in Toronto yesterday. We all know the story. We all know the details by now. We've all seen the pictures. We've all seen the video. Uh, it is obviously the press conferences are still going on. They are still identifying bodies. It's a horrible, horrible story. It's a horrible situation. And yet here is, to me, there are a lot of troubling parts to this, but to me, perhaps the most troubling or certainly one of the most troubling is the commonness of it. Somebody didn't have a high capacity machine gun, like in Las Vegas, shooting out of a hotel window with a bunch of guns. Someone didn't set up explosives like at the, well, like a million different terrorist attacks at the Murrah building in Oklahoma City once upon a time or wherever else. It was just a van. It was a rental van. And it really does start to make you wonder, is there anything we could do about this? Even if we knew that people were contemplating stuff, if we knew there were people who potentially could cause trouble, is there really any way to stop to prevent something like this? Candace Kelschel is a fellow at the Center for Security and Intelligence Studies at the University of Buckingham in the United Kingdom. She's a specialist in conflict and global affairs, the author of two books, Armed Forces and Government and Mutiny or Revolution. And she is also a professor at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia. She joins us now. Thanks for doing this, Candace. Sure. How can I help? Well, I, we know about the school shootings and we know about the terror attacks with explosives and we know about taking planes into World Trade Center and all the rest. But in the last two, three years, I guess, we have been seeing more and more examples of people taking it right down to the basics and using vehicles as weapons, really weapons of mass destruction. Uh, why is it, is it really obvious why this is happening? Why is this the new method that people are using? Well, that is the, that is the question that everyone is asking today. You know, how dangerous is, is daily life? And if people can use cars and vehicles as a weapon, um, how can we ever know for certain that we are safe or not safe? And these are really important questions that we need to focus on. Um, what we're seeing in terms of the use of cars and vehicles uh, for back acts of, of violent extremism um, is, and we have to use the term extremism here because people who are prepared to commit violence uh, in the name of a particular issue, are operating outside the you know, social norms. So they are extremists in their view. Um, I think the commonality here is because violence is becoming, I hate to use the term, but I would have to say democratized, in that people are now able to get their hands on anything, and those who are willing to do harm are finding it easier and easier to do so, largely because the society is becoming more permissive in what we are accepting and not accepting as okay. Uh, we hear hate crime rhetoric. We hear lots of bullying uh, on the airwaves and on TV. We are ourselves using language that is slipping into um, uh, intolerance, and we, and this is happening unchecked. So it stands to reason that the violent actions that follow extremist thought um, are beginning to increase. And when you then talk about it being the d- democratization of violence. Is another way of saying it just if you can find anything that they'll use, a van is a very easy thing. Everyone can get a van or a car or whatever you want. It, it, it's very simple now. You don't need a high capacity rifle or a high capacity machine gun or some sort of TNT or something. You just need a car and you can create all kinds of mayhem. 
Exactly, but not everyone is willing to act on extremist uh, impulse. Sure, thank goodness. So, so, the, so the key, so the so quite right. So the key here is how are we able to begin to discern when and where there is danger in someone using a vehicle against us? And one of the arguments that I would like people to be thinking a little bit about is the fact that um, we are in the midst of a change in society. People are beginning to identify with different groups and feelings uh, are beginning to be shared on the internet, uh, in community, and people are willing to express violent uh, uh, thoughts, but they're also being encouraged by those communities that they're associating themselves with. The incel community that this particular individual is um, alleged to be involved with, we need to to take into account that this is part of the alt-right. This is an alt-right movement which is comprised of the same individuals who are in the alt-right movement, and there's extensive academic study on this. And so we, we can't take for granted when we hear things like someone is uh, having mental health issues and that's why they're using a car as a weapon. Um, it goes much deeper than that. Is Would you distinguish, because you talk about extremism, would you call this terrorism, or would you, or is it extremism, or can the two be separated? That's an excellent question. Um, and the answer is complex. It's both yes and no. It is not terrorism because it doesn't conform to the legal definition of terrorism as it currently exists. It is terrorist in that it uses terrorist actions of vehicle as a means of causing mass ca- casualties and threat and alarm. Uh, uh, but it is not terrorism because it, it, where is the political ideology attached? On the face of it, that does not seem to be there. The only logical charge that we can, we can put for this is murder because that's what the legal system allows. But what's going on in society is something far more complex. The incel movement and the alt-right movement share the same language. They use the same terminology, um, you know, in the way they refer to men and women and, and their feelings of oppression and being marginalized. And yet we've got similar sentiments being expressed by those who are engaging in political Islam or, or, or jihadism, who are those people who feel marginalized, that they're not being taken seriously, that they're sense of identity is being compromised by, by Western life. And then we've come to the incel movement where we have young men who feel that they are marginalized and they cannot form intimate or real relationships and they're being disenfranchised and left out of uh, commercial endeavors because they're not privileged enough to be able to have good jobs. The same sentiment is in existence, but people are just collecting themselves into different pockets. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Chatting with Candace Kelschel, who is a security and intelligence expert, and just before the break, we were talking about the fact that she was outlying, uh, laying out the, the situation here. You've got people who are now disenfranchised, they're angry, they're extremist or terrorist, the two can be complicated sometimes, and... Violence because of now things like trucks or vans that are at people's disposal can be democratized. So anybody pretty much could do, could act out their actions. Not everybody will, but they could. And Candace, that's where this thing becomes troubling to me in so many ways, because when you have the scenario where you have someone who's disenfranchised and angry enough to do something and they use a weapon as commonplace as a van that you really can't identify as being any different, it's there's no way to prevent this, is there? Well, well, there is. Um, I think, you know, when we look at the causes of why this is happening, people feel that they are unable to connect with others, they can't form intimate relationships, 
um, the sense of community that they do create around them happens to be with people who think along the same lines. And so there's no one putting a check on on people's expression of violence. I think our responsibility as good citizens is where we hear hate crime, where we hear extremist thoughts, that we need to challenge it and you know have a dialogue in place where we can we can challenge or question someone when they express these views. Um, it, we have a responsibility as individuals um, to help the state manage this security concern, and it is an increasing security concern. But the but the police are and the law enforcement communities can't be everywhere at all times. Whereas us citizens, we we are, you know, as a as a body politic, we're engaging with each other on a daily basis, and we have the opportunity to engage in dialogue where we hear people expressing things that could be construed as violence. So the the old line, if you see something, say something. Well, if you see something, don't just say something, but actually start a conversation with that individual. Mm. Okay, because that's not the usual. Most of the time when you hear people say, when you see something, say something, it's rush off to the police immediately or someone else, as opposed to learn something about the person you're talking with. Well, we're talking about the democratization, um, you know, an easy method of, of creating mayhem within communities. Uh, we just don't have enough police officers. The intelligence service is excellent at what it's doing. That's why there have been so few attacks in Canada. But it reaches only so far. You can only monitor something that you know is a threat. If you don't know an individual is a threat, you can't monitor them and stop them. That has to come from the home, the community, the people around each other, actually looking after each other and looking after our, our democracy by, by challenging and engaging with hate crime and, and, and hate talk when we, when we come across it. Do you believe then, because clearly we've seen cases, there's been a number of these in London, there's been some in Spain, there's been some in Germany, and I'm, I'm forgetting where else, uh, obviously Edmonton had one. Some are b- slipping between the cracks then, where people may have heard about this or not. Do you believe then that if we had people who were really paying attention, that we could essentially catch most, if not all, or identify most, if not all, of these people before this happened? Um, actually, you know, this may be a bit controversial, but but yes, I do. Um, we cannot leave the responsibility to law enforcement, to the intelligence services, to the police. They can they can respond. Their job is to respond. Their job is to protect as best they can once a crime has been committed, and in some cases before a crime is committed. But as the body politic, as families, parents, aunts, uncles, cousins, work colleagues, we are the people that are at the core face, if you will, able to hear and see when something doesn't sound right. And a little thing like challenging someone who's expressing, you know, a, you know, a, a, a violent thought might stop or change that person's mind. The, this uh, individual who committed the atrocities uh, uh, in Toronto was a member of this incel movement. There are 40,000 members of different incel forums uh, in North America. That number should stagger you. This is not one individual who is, has mental health issues. There are 40,000 people who share those views and express them on the Internet in writing. That tells us there's a bigger problem here. Just before I let you go, is there anything, there's no way that a city, though, could prepare or defend against something like this, could anticipate something like this? Because again, uh, first of all, it's very unusual, it's very uncommon. We wouldn't want our cities to be in preparation for something like this, necessarily. Would we, this kind of attack? We just, that, that would make it every city a fortress. 
yes, I agree with you. And and we don't want that, nor do we want to become hypervigilant, always on the lookout for someone attacking us. That changes the nature of who we are, you know, as a nation, as a Canadian, as a Canadian unified nation. Um, I, I think that the difference here is that there are things that we can do to make sure that we are not easily uh, targets. You know, you pay attention to where you're walking, make sure that you're not, you know, you're not in an exposed area, for example, you walk behind planters, you know, you can always be on the lookout for if something were to occur, where's my next exit? These are just normal everyday things that we could put into the tuck into the back of our heads. But no, we can't lock down our cities. We can't stop people driving cars. And we certainly can't live change the way we live because then that would mean that people who have extremist views are winning. Candace Kelschel, uh, really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for this. Pleasure. Thank you. That is, uh, I mean, that's, who, who doesn't agree with that? We can't put up barricades everywhere. We can't make every sidewalk protected by a wall. And yet the reality is that, I mean, it's, it, you don't want to create panic, but every crosswalk, if someone was out there who really wanted to create problems, every crosswalk, every sidewalk, every building, every intersection, what do you do? You don't, you just hope and pray that most of them either don't have the intention they want to do this or that someone catches them, like she said, before that happens. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. It has been a heavy last 48 hours, roughly, on here, on, well, everywhere in the media. It's been a lot, pretty heavy thing. So if you're feeling the need for a few minutes to cleanse your emotional, psychological palate, I have an idea for you because some of you may, as part of your summer tradition, as some of your plans every year, some of you may make a trip to Stratford. That is not an uncommon thing for people around here to do, to go down there, spend a day, go to a play. And this year, this year, the festival will have its usual mix of Shakespeare. I think there are three or four Shakespeare plays. Julius Caesar is going to be put on there and The Tempest. Uh, there are classics this year like Paradise Lost and like Long Day's Journey Into Night. There are musicals like The Music Man and even Rocky Horror Picture Show, which I never really pictured as a Stratford kind of thing. Rocky Horror Picture Show at Stratford. I'd love to see them do it in Shakespearean style. That would be a show, but I I don't think we have such luck to see that this year. But there's also one more that is going to be going on this year at Stratford. To Kill a Mockingbird is going to be staged there through the summer. And what is interesting about that, not just that they're doing the play, that's always great. It's a great play. It's a great book. It's a great movie. What's interesting is what's happening at the nearby Stratford Perth Museum. For the first time ever, the Monroe County Museum, which is down in Alabama, where Harper Lee was from, who wrote it, it's the museum about her writing of To Kill a Mockingbird and the book and everything else. Uh, The museum down there is sending a traveling exhibit to accompany the play up here of stuff. I'm not exactly sure what stuff, but stuff that goes along with the Kill a Mockingbird. John Kastner is the general manager of the Stratford Perth Museum. He joins me now. John, thanks for doing this tonight. Thank you. Uh, I'm not... Now, I I hope this isn't going to be sounding insulting. It's certainly not intended that way, but I'm not entirely sure that I would have thought that the first ever time that this exhibit was going to be sent on the road and put somewhere would have necessarily landed in Stratford. How did you end up with this? Well, it's interesting you should say that. You know, our museum, and, you know, very, very boastfully, I'm not ashamed to say, so we, we like to think that we punch above our weight as far as the exhibits we present. We've uh, three years ago, we had an exhibit from the Anne Frank House in Amsterdam, uh, which was incredibly uh, 
well received and, and very popular. And we did that the, the same year that the Stratford Festival presented the play The Diary of Anne Frank. And that sort of began a bit of a tradition for us where we tried to match a an exhibit at the museum with the Stratford Festival playbill. And we did a Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe exhibit a couple of years ago. And uh, this past year, in 2017, about July, the Stratford Festival released its playbill for 2018. And as we do every year, we scan the playbill and say, you know, what works here? What can we match up with? What can we do? And I saw they were doing To Kill a Mockingbird. And I literally, I literally Googled To Kill a Mockingbird Museum. And I, I found that there was one in Monroeville. Uh, Alabama museum, not unlike ours, about the same size. And uh, I called them. It was a cold call on a Friday afternoon. I called my counterpart there, a guy named Nathan Carter, told him where Stratford was, told him about the Stratford Festival, uh, talked about Canada, and talked about how we entertained the idea of having a traveling exhibit in Stratford. We're on the phone about 90 minutes, and by the time we're off, we'd, we'd reached an agreement, and and here we are. So this didn't exist in their minds even before you called? No, it was really interesting. He said to me, he said that we've never done a traveling exhibit. We've talked about it. My board has talked about it. We never had an idea where we were going to do it. And he said, here I am on a Friday afternoon. A guy calls me from Canada. And we end up getting off the phone. He said, I know where we're going to do our first traveling exhibit. And what will people see? What What is in this exhibit? I don't even know what kind of stuff you could have in a traveling exhibit of Harper Lee and To Kill a Mockingbird. Maybe a giant ha- plaster of Paris ham, but other than that, I'm not really sure. So what we've done is <laughs> we've pulled together some images that they had at the Harper Lee Museum, at the Monroe County Museum. And some of them are from the movie. Some of them are storyboards from the movie, like the, the set designs and they're sketched out in charcoal. We have, uh, we have replicas of those. But the most important thing is we've got five or six what we call text panels. So these are three-foot by eight-foot panels that have the narrative of the exhibit on them. There's, they're augmented by images uh, from the museum itself, uh, images of Harper Lee, images of the community, maps of Monroeville. And that story is somewhat autobiographical for Harper Lee. The story is pulled together from a number of incidents, a number of people that she knew in her life. There's a number of locations in the community. And it talks about those individuals, those incidents, the geography of the community itself, some of the historical things that took place that gave her the foundation for for that iconic novel. Well, and and one of the things that I learned about this, I didn't know, the museum is actually in the old courthouse, as I understand it, which was the basis for the big climactic scene in the movie. And that courthouse was essentially rebuilt on a soundstage replicated for this. So if you were to go down there, that's where the museum is. Correct. And so the the iconic part of the climax of the movie where Atticus Finch, you know, pleads for innocence, that that is the museum. And they filmed part of the movie in the museum, then they recreated uh, that courtroom in Hollywood. And, and part of the movie was filmed at both places, but part of it was filmed on location in Monroeville. And that really is obviously the real tie between the novel, the movie, and the museum, and by extension for us as well. In the gallery where this exhibit is going to go, the one whole end wall is a great big black and white image of that courtroom taken from the floor level looking up into the balcony. 
You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Chatting with John Kastner, general manager of the Stratford Perth Museum, where... Oh, well, not quite next door, but very close to the Stratford. The play To Kill a Mockingbird is going to be presented all summer. And you can then go over to his museum and see this traveling exhibit that has never been out of Monroeville, Alabama before. This is the first time. And John, we were talking about the museum and the courthouse down there. And I've not been down. I don't know if you have, but I'm. it's kind of in the middle of almost nowhere relatively speaking. And yet this is, as I understand it, still a huge tourist destination. They get tons of people down there. It says something about how interested people still are in this book. Well, it is It is amazing. And I think one of the narratives of the exhibit, and when we went back and forth with the museum in Monroeville about what, this, what story we should talk about and what the narrative of this exhibit is, we talked about how this book, which is very well loved and if you see any list of people's top ten books, it, it regularly still makes that list. The, the book is set in 1931. It's published in 1961. And here we are in 2018. And one of the things we talked about at length was how relevant that book is, not only when it was set in 31, published in 61, and today, there are a lot of the same themes, a lot of the same stories, a lot of the same human failings are relevant over the course of almost 90 years. And I think that's why the book remains so popular, is it speaks to people. It's not a, ironically, it's not really a kid's book. It deals with very, you know, very mature and, you know, sort of uncomfortable, un- uncomfortable human failings. But it's very popular in school. It's uh, loved by not only kids, but adults alike. And it's a very unique book in our you know, in the past hundred years of literature, it is a very unique book. It is also, uh, you talk about how difficult it is, it is also a controversial book. There have been people who have wanted it banned because of the language is involved and the themes that are involved of racism and, and things like that. Is that difficult for a museum? Is a museum supposed to be, I guess I should say, is a museum supposed to be a safe space where people really, can go or yeah. a challenging space? I think it should be a challenging space. I mean, museums tell stories. That's what we do. And museums can tell stories about a a number of things. If, for example, we look back to our really first foray into international exhibits, it was the Anne Frank House exhibit. And that was an uncomfortable story. And that talked about how people didn't do anything and how it was important to learn those lessons or the classic phrase, or we're doomed to repeat them. And you know, we, even though we're a small community museum, we're not afraid to tell those stories and to, and to challenge people to think about the past, how it relates to the future, and how things like that are relevant to today's society. It, the Anne Frank, though, when you do an Anne Frank exhibit, uh, there's not much question about who the bad guys are. We uh, there's not there's nobody out there, or not too many people who are rooting for the Nazis. And you can show that this is to kill a mockingbird. I mean, it's a different N word that is used in the book, which is part of the controversy here. It is something that probably there will be people who will still be upset with the notion of exactly that. exactly yeah. it's a little bit different from point painting the nazis appropriately as terrible people as this one that is more nuanced but still as i say some of the words and some of the language it, it really does upset people no question and i think and to be honest i think the play does as well when we when i look at the kill a mockingbird play and how it's being presented this year and some of the themes of it that plays unsettling 
and it and it is a bit challenging for people. And I think the exhibit really augments that. And it does not. Uh, it certainly doesn't take. It doesn't take the easy road on this on this play. It examines. It examines the tougher part of that story, which, in all honesty, I think is a good thing. I was going to say, is it a bad thing to be offended? I don't think it is. I think it's a good thing to look at our human failings and to say, that's where we were. How far are we removed from that? And as I leave this exhibit, you know, do I feel a little bit differently about things? And I think that's okay. Now, many of the people, I don't, I mean, kids do come to the Stratford Festival, of course they do, but I mean, it's often an adult audience that comes there. They make a day of it. And I would guess that many, if not most, if not the majority of people who would be in that crowd will have either read the book or seen the movie with Gregory Peck. So do they get something additional by either seeing the play or by seeing the museum? Oh, I think so. And, you know, in particular, the relationship that Harper Lee had with the community and the relationship she had with the southern United States in the 1960s. The relationship with Truman Capote, for example, who was also from Monroeville and who was the basis of the, you know, the very curious character in Harper Lee Dill, you know, the awkward next-door neighbor kid who came and lived there for the summer. You know, that's based on Truman Capote, which is, you know, very, you know, a very interesting relationship as well. And, you know, he left Monroeville and moved away and wrote in Cold Blood and the relationship that Harper Lee had with him throughout her life. So it explores those things. You don't know, you don't really know that when you read the book. You don't, you certainly don't know that when you see the movie. But those are important things. And once you know those things, I certainly look at the movie differently and I certainly look at the story differently. And I think more, I think more fully. Now, when the adults come to see this and get their additional taste and additional experience with To Kill a Mockingbird, does their entry fee also get them an entrance into the Justin Bieber exhibit at your museum? It does. <laughs> <laughs> and if you talk about if you talk about the antithesis of you know polarizing <laughs> exhibits, um, you know we always say we, there's something for everything at the Stratford, something for everybody at the Stratford Museum, and we set it up geographically in the museum, so when you come in. If you turn left, you can go to the Justin Bieber exhibit. And if you turn right, you go to the Stratford Festival exhibit. You go to our railway exhibit. You go to our military exhibit. If you, you turn, see, if you turn the wrong the way, Mockingbird exhibit. Yeah, and keep, if you turn the wrong way, you'll be awfully confused. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I, I still, I, for next year, maybe, I still would have loved to have seen what kind of exhibit you would have put forward for the Rocky Horror Picture Show exhibit. But, you know, I dare to dream, maybe down the road. Well, we're tackling that, and I got to tell you, we're showing. We're this year we're showing Rocky Horror Picture. Yep. The movie outdoors. Oh. On on the museum property, and it's licensed. John Castner, general manager of the Stratford Perth Museum. It's a great event. Um, you can find it online. Again, you can find the play with the Stratford Festival. You can then know that it is nearby and make your way over there. John, thanks for the time today. Thank you so much. That's uh, that's a great idea. Because again, we've all we've all we all know the book. We all know the story, right? We've all seen the movie. Certainly, something. If you're looking, if you're making a day of it, if you're going anyway, and many, many, many people do, worth your time to spend an hour or so checking it out. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show weeknights from six to eight only on 900 CHML.
gonna need a bigger radio station. For the next story, anyway, I want to tell you a story. Uh, maybe the unluckiest man on planet Earth. That's a subjective ruling. I understand that. You will argue, I suppose, that you know someone who has less luck than this guy. Nonetheless. Uh, the guy's name is Dylan McWilliams. He's a Colorado guy. A couple of years ago, I think it was a couple, a couple or three years ago, anyway, he was uh, in Arizona, I believe he said. And he was bitten by a rattlesnake, which is a bad day for anybody. I don't think that there's anybody who's thinking that the day they get bitten by a rattlesnake is a high point in their life. And you would think that coming face to fang with a rattlesnake, a poisonous rattlesnake, as they all are, unless they're deep. But can you depoisonify a rattlesnake? I don't know. You can do that with like some spiders and stuff. I guess you can. Anyway, he was poisoned. He got bitten. He got sick. He got chomped by a rattlesnake. How much worse could it get? What other thing could go wrong after that that would eclipse that on your bad involvement with nature. Well, old Dylan, our teenage friend with the worst luck in the world. Oh, we're not there yet. <laughs> Keep it handy. We're not there yet. Uh, last year, he was at a survival camp in Boulder, in the Boulder, Colorado area. Survival camp. It's an appropriate name. He was an instructor at survival camp out in the wilderness doing their thing. He was attacked by a bear. The guy who was bitten by a rattlesnake now has been attacked by a bear. Um, his quote, the bear pulled me into its mouth and then grabbed me with its teeth. He was able to extract his head from the jaws of a bear at survival camp. When I pulled, it tore the skin and scraped along my skull, which was like that cracking noise that I heard. Well, that's gross. So he still lived, but he's had his, he's been bitten by a rattlesnake. And then he's at survival camp a year later and a bear almost chomps his head off, but he survived. Which brings us to last week. There we go. Yes. Dylan McWilliams, unluckiest man on the planet. He was surfing in Hawaii last week. When, guess what happened? Any guesses? If you can't guess with the music, you're not paying close enough attention. Yeah, a shark bit his leg while he was surfing. Just chomped on his leg. This guy must be delicious. Every animal in the wild kingdom wants to eat this guy. He must just be slathered in maple syrup or something. I'm not exactly sure what. Anyway, this, he says he's surfing. The sharp shark grabs his leg and chomps on him and takes leaves huge. Now, he, he had all of his leg, I guess, still attached. He didn't lose any of his leg. He just had deep, nasty cuts all up and down that part of the leg. So now, you know what sharks, what what works with sharks, what happens. They, you know, all the nature shows tell us they smell blood in the water. Well, he's now got to swim on his surfboard into shore, leaving a trail of blood in the ocean, knowing that a shark had just bit him. And he goes, I know the shark is just behind me. I know the shark is just behind me. Yet somehow this guy... Dylan McWilliams, unluckiest man on the planet, 
made it into shore. So, in the span of three years, he has been bitten by a rattlesnake, had his head chomped by a bear, and had his leg chomped by a shark. I can't even guess what will happen to this guy next. I mean, what's the... The shark is kind of the apex predator, isn't it? It's kind of, is there, a, is there a predator out there that, I mean, a lion, I suppose, he could go to Africa for a safari and end up being eaten by a lion. Is there something bigger than a shark? I don't know. Is, don't, this, is this when we find out that he dies from food poisoning or something? <laughs> no, but, but this is the part, as I finish this story, reading about the horrible luck that he has, this is the part that I almost... My eyes almost bugged out of my head. Guess who he says his hero is? Guess who he says the guy who's been eaten, bitten by a rattlesnake, chomped by a bear, and bitten by a shark. Who is this guy's hero? Steve Irwin? Steve Irwin! Time for a new hero! I mean, the crocodile hunter, interesting guy, but you remember how he died? It was not a good thing. I think it's time to find a new hero. Do not replicate that. But yes, Steve Irwin is this guy's hero. So maybe, well, I don't want to say it. When I say what happens next, stay away from stingrays is all I got to say. Sorry, I don't have a song for stingrays. <laughs> I'm sure there is one, but anyway, unluckiest man on the planet. There, I don't think anyone listening, I hope, has been eaten by three creatures, at least partially. But again, he must be delicious. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Let us go to, or let us bring in, Don Robertson of the Dundas Real McCoys of ComChoice Realty of... That's enough. Well, of of other things as well in the greater Dundas area. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for changing your schedule and coming in today at the last uh, minute. I didn't. It was pretty easy. I just sat in a parking lot all night and day. I was ready. (laughs) Just waited out there all night. They just kept running you water out there to keep you uh, liquefied. I hear there was a hockey game last night, and I missed it too because of that. But anyways. Well, there's a hockey. You know you know who's the happiest? Well, they're not happy right now. They're losing one nothing. But the most relieved people on the planet are the uh, Hamilton Bulldogs and Kingston Frontenacs because tomorrow night you got a Leaf game seven. you got a Raptors game five. You've got TFC playing in a championship game, and you've got the Blue Jays playing. I think the Bulldogs and the Kingston Frontenacs and the OHL are kind of happy they're playing tonight and not competing head-to-head with that. I think as loyal as the Kingston fans might be, it would hurt their attendance. Game sevens for Toronto Maple Leafs are, are big news. They're big deals, and they draw big crowds. And uh, yeah, it's um, it'll be it'll be interesting. Here's my question for you right off the bat, because this has been driving me nuts since these playoffs started. When it dawned on me, and then I looked it up and saw that it in fact was the case that Bob Cole, who's I think he's 84 now, something like that. He's in his 80s. Yeah, not calling any games these playoffs. Uh, Jim Houston is calling these playoffs, and I got to tell you, I, I not a huge Jim Houston fan. I don't know why they won't, they wouldn't bring out Bob Cole for the big moments, and this would seem to be a great big moment. I think when Jim Houston uh, took the job, he and Simpson were uh, pretty much assured that they would be the number one team. Oh, I'm sure Bob Cole hasn't been doing Leaf playoff games. Not that there's been an abundance of them over the last decade, but for a long time. But he's done the other series. He would maybe do Montreal or he would do Yeah, but he hasn't done any this, this spring. No, he's had no and, playoffs. And to me, Bob Cole's voice, and maybe this is an, an era thing because for a certain era, era, it would have been Danny Gallivan or it would have been Dick Irvin 
or pick your guy. I mean, go back far enough, it would have been Bill, uh, Hewitt. Bill Hewitt or Foster Hewitt. <coughs> but for my generation, for my era, Bob Cole is the voice of the big moments in hockey, and Jim Houston isn't. I mean, he just isn't. And there are even other guys that Sportsnet and CBC have brought out for these playoffs that I look at and I go, you know what, I know they're younger, I know they're newer, I know they may want to prop these guys up and give them a boost, but they don't sound like Bob Cole. They just don't. Well, they've taken all the personality out of it. I mean, the CBC Sportsnet try and be right down the middle because they're the national broadcaster for the National Hockey League. Uh, There are hordes of people that would love to see Joe Bowen and Jim Ralph do the television version of this with the Holy Mackinac. And, and, uh, you know, they don't let people be personalities anymore like Bob Cole and, you know, uh, geez, oh, golly me. And you know what but I see, mean? That's and, okay, but there's a, there is a local broadcast, and that's the guys you're talking about with the, what, what uh, Bob, um, or what's his name? Who's Joe the, Bowen. Joe Bowen, thank you, Holy Mackinac. There's the local broadcast, and every local broadcaster is a homer. They can be homers. And they're allowed to be homers. Because and they they're all, paid by the team. And they all are homers, and that's fine. You're expecting when you tune into your local yep. broadcaster, they are not going to be anti your team. That would be that would be a first. Yeah, well, it would be a short career. But Bob Cole has never been the homer guy. No, but what I, what, the, the reason I, I reference um, um, Joe Bowen, who used to do some stuff on Sportsnet and so on, is because he's a personality. Sure. He he's is. got some sayings that he uses. Jim Houston or Houston is like listening to Walter Cronkite read the news. Right? Very, he's just he's not monotone, but he doesn't get excited when the Leafs play or he you know, a lot of people a lot of people would argue that Jim Houston and Craig Simpson almost sound disappointed when the Leafs do well. I've heard that from a lot of people. I've heard that from a lot of people. Well, I think they, they try and keep it so that they're not looking like they're homers and they have to work at it. So but anyway, it's the little phrases that Bob Cole used to have and and uh, the home you know he's an oofie I would I would and he brought that flavor to the and everybody loved them I would pay money I literally would pay a certain amount no, I mean not, I'm not talking crazy money here but I would pay if you were to charge me and say for the big games for a game seven and again maybe this has something to do with my era and my generation and what I grew up with to have Bob Cole and Dick Irvin do a game Together at this point, and Dick Irvin's still alive. He's a, a Hamilton guy. His dad, Dick Irvin Senior, was from Hamilton, Ontario. Did, don't know if you knew that. The only coach still, and let, and let Brian McFarland do the interviews between the, periods instead he, of that kid that's still in grade nine that's doing them. <laughs> Where did that go? Like, where's Christine Simpson? I mean, but that see, that's another one that I wondered about because Christine Simpson is a terrific, <coughs> experienced, uh, respected. It, it, like it, it, she intermission or interview person for it, it's kind of like they took the playoffs and they said hey I know what we're gonna do let's blow the whole thing up and shuffle the deck and make everything up on its head I I, I think people want maybe be she's com- doing the is she doing the Winnipeg games is she, or is she gone I don't think she's gone but I I I think people want to be comfortable when they watch yeah, the, the, they want 
familiar. I really, I know that, you know, when Sportsnet first got the TV package, they did everything different. They had George Strombolopoulos instead of... of uh, Ron McLean. Thank that, you. I'm having a hard time with names. That went well. Yeah, that did. And they did all kinds of other things. They had panels everywhere, and they had second-story panels in the studio, and they had people dangling from the ceiling. And the I think guys they had on, the, on the ice surface showing you no, how they to had, I the think puck. they had the Bolshoi Ballet doing stuff, and I mean, it was like they had everything. And everybody was like, you know what? I, no, I want to have... Ron and Don, I want to have Coach's Corner. I want to have the guys who I like to watch and the women. I, I, I don't, and maybe it's just us being old guys, but I think that people want the thing that they're comfortable with. And I know you eventually have to change the guard because people do get older. Brian McFarland's in his 80s and Dick Irvin's in his 80s, if not 90s now, and Bob Cole. But it just, it's, it, it doesn't it's feel like a, the it's same. It's like a comfortable pair of slippers when you want to sit down and... And, you know, for Bob Cole, when they say, well, Bob Cole f- misses the odd name now, everybody misses the odd name. He's 84 years old, so if he misses a name... You've missed two tonight. That, I, no kidding. We're four minutes in. No kidding. If, if he misses a name every 10 minutes or gets the wrong guy, Excuse me. he's on TV. He's still worth it. He's still worth it, and he's on TV. If he says, that's... Pick any leaf you want. That's, that's, that's Austin Matthews, and really it's Mitch Marner... You're watching it. You can say, oh, okay, that was Mitch Marner. And it's you not- know what? You don't have time to think about it. It's not like he's saying it's Dave Keon over at Allman back to Shaq. <laughs> no, that would be confusing. Yeah. And it's not like baseball where if a guy came up to bat and threw out the hole at bat, you said that's the – and you used the wrong guy's name. The guys have the puck on their stick for a, a second. Yeah. Especially now. Oh. So if, if you miss the – like that, that whole thing about, well, Bob Cole misses the names – I'm not buying that as the reason. I, I think they're trying to build their stable of younger up-and-coming or younger people for the future. And I don't mind that they do that. But I don't know that you have to dump out the legend or the legends at the same time. Well, it had to be done at some point. I mean, it has to end at some point. It does have to end at some point. But here's the thing. If the person is still capable of doing the job, and I think he is still capable. I th- when I've heard him, he's still capable yeah. of doing the job, and he's still passionate about it, and he's still interested in doing it. That, to me, is when you don't say, okay, we're going to dump him now. I, I read a couple of uh, quotes from him because he was interviewed when he when he was clearly not, not, not going to be involved. And he wasn't happy. He said, I don't know why. And, you know, that's really, you can't give Bob Cole the bum's rush and have him saying things like, I don't know why, and, I, you know, they really didn't tell me why. And that's what grates on a guy like me that's listened to him for forever uh, after Bill Hewitt. When you start going, you know, that is no way to treat a legend. And he's a legend in Canadian hockey broadcasting. He did uh, the 1972 Summit yeah. series. We, you know, many years ago, uh, well, it would have been probably, well, maybe not many years ago, maybe a couple of years ago, we found the radio call that he did because he did the radio that Foster Hewitt did the TV and it was Bob Cole who did the radio. No one had ever heard the Bob Cole call before. And we found it and played it on here and talked to him about it. We had him on that night to talk about it. And, he, and you know, the amazing thing to me was about that discussion with Bob Cole. I, I don't want to put words in his mouth or tell you how he was feeling when he could do that. But he seemed tickled that someone actually remembered that he had actually done that call because the truth is everybody always plays the Foster Hewitt call. No one even thinks that there might have been another call, and it was him. 
and he seemed very happy that that call had somehow lasted. Well, it should. Of course I mean, it should. The radio call and the TV call, the the Henderson scoring. Henderson scores for Canada! That's very Like good. everybody in the world has heard that multiple times and probably wondered who was making the call. But you're right, if you had to be in your car, which nobody was, sadly, uh, unless you decided to turn the radio on because you like Bob Cole, and he wasn't a household name then, he'd be uh, he'd be an interesting guy to throw back on. And you know what? You just you raised an interesting point. I got to give you. The, I mean, it. He was not a household name then, and maybe this goes right into the face of what we we're just talking about. Because once upon a time, he was the guy that was, yeah, being played when maybe people at this time on sports talk back in 1970 were saying, "Well, why are they playing this idiot Cole all the time instead of the guys who I want to hear?" It would be interesting to see who he bumped out. Well, he. I mean, as I say, Foster Hewitt had already retired and was brought back for that series. So Foster Hewitt, he didn't bump, and, and Foster Hewitt obviously got TV. I mean, Foster Hewitt probably bumped out someone else himself. Maybe he bumped out Bob Cole. Could have. Maybe Bob Cole would have done Bob the Bob Cole bumped somebody out. So Bob Cole took somebody's job. At, at that point, he must have been chosen for it over someone else. Although, keep in mind, there were, there were 12 NHL teams back then, not 31. Uh, and there were, a few of them were not really hotbeds of hockey yet in 1972. It's just after, only five years after expansion. Um, and only two, and still only two Canadian teams. Yeah, so who knows? Uh, Hamilton Bulldogs, as we go to commercial break here, Hamilton Bulldogs, in the time we have spoken, just have scored two goals and now lead Kingston 2-1 to one in the fourth game, leading 3 nothing. Chance to clinch the series tonight and move into the OHL final. They're doing very well. The Robertson Cup. The Robertson Cup, see? Named after Don Robertson, or not? My grandfather's name was John Robertson. Was it your grandfather? No, but there is a Robertson Cup. He was president of the Ontario Rural Hockey Association, and there is a Robertson Cup. It was originally made from frozen cow dung, molded into a giant trophy and handed to the people, but it it only lasted till spring. Then it thawed and had to be returned to the field. It was all natural ice then. Don Robertson, thank you so much for coming in today and changing your schedule. And who knows, maybe we'll make this a new thing. We'll g- guess the day of dawn. We'll just switch it up every day, every week. I wake up some mornings not knowing what day it is, so just let me know when to come. <laughs> I'll do my best. Okay, th- we won't do that. We'll actually have it on Monday. A uh, system is better than uh, for me. I-, I can't keep track either. I I lose my mind. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from six to eight on nine hundred CHML.